This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Right now, there is a defection with Al-Shabaab. But, you know, they are, they are a resilient group. They are, they are going to retreat and uh, re-strategize. That's Professor Abdi Wahab Abdi Samad, Director of the Institute for Horn of Africa Strategic Studies on possible reaction by the extremists Al-Shabaab group to Somalia's execution of two ISIS militants. Details coming up. Also, peace talks between Ethiopia and Tigray continue in South Africa. Doctors Without Borders says Kenya's Dadab refugee complex faces a high risk of measles and cholera outbreaks. And the U.S. Embassy in South Africa warns of a possible terror attack this weekend. We have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Peace talks between Ethiopia's federal government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front continue in South Africa. Participants have made no public comments in Pretoria. The African Union's Horn of Africa envoy, former Nigerian president Olisegen Obasanjo, Kenya's former leader Uhuru Kenyatta, and South Africa's ex-vice president Pumzili Miyambo Nguka are facilitating the talks. Yesterday, rights group Amnesty International said every party involved in the war in northern Ethiopia has committed crimes against humanity. The group called for a probe into abuses in the nearly two-year-old conflict. Amnesty says Tigrayans, the federal forces, members of the Amhara ethnic group and Eritrean forces are responsible for rapes, looting, torture and killings. United Nations officials have made similar allegations. Each of the combatant forces, however, have rejected such allegations and blamed their opponents. Today, Reuters News reported that two organizations from Ethiopia's Oromia region accused the army of conducting airstrikes there in recent days, which they said had killed hundreds of civilians, just as peace talks on the Tigray conflict were about to start. Government and army spokespersons did not respond today to requests for comment on the accusations. Michel D. Gavin is the Ralph Bunch Senior Fellow for Africa Policy Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. From 2011 to 2014, she was the U.S. Ambassador to Botswana and served concurrently as the U.S. Representative to the Southern Africa Development Community, SADC. A Wounded Ethiopia is one of the many blogs she has posted regarding the Tigray region. In her recent blog, she writes about the intensifying fighting in the region. I first asked Ambassador Gavin about the surge in fierce fighting on one side and peace talks being conducted in South Africa on the other. It's an incredibly uh, alarming situation. You're right, peace talks uh, apparently started in South Africa under AU auspices. And, you know, the AU has not been terribly effective uh, to date in addressing this crisis. So I think while everyone recognizes that there's no real military solution to this conflict, talks and negotiations are essential. And 
probably expectations are tempered a bit about what can be achieved um, in South Africa, given the fact that the fighting does continue. Uh, it's not clear, I think, to most observers that both parties recognize that there will be no complete military victory. But diplomats, you know, really have no choice but to try their very best to stop the carnage, get humanitarian assistance to people who need it, and try and find a way forward. Talking about diplomats, uh, Madam Ambassador, AU Horn of Africa envoy and Nigerian former president, Olisogon Obasanjo, is the talk's chief facilitator. Uh, Kenya's ex-president, Uhuru Kenyatta, South Africa's ex-vice-president, Famzili Malambo Nguku, and also U.S. Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa, Mike Hammer, are participating. Will their presence help the warring sides uh, to stop the carnage and build some momentum towards peace? Well, I hope it will. Um, As you rightly note, that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, um, and that can you know, certainly complicate situations like this where parties, you know, if parties believe they can engage in in forum shopping, that one or the other of these mediators is more sympathetic to their point of view than another, that can uh, actually hamper progress. But it's also the case that this is a new formula and the previous formula wasn't working. So I absolutely think, you know, it makes sense to try something new and, and see if this can move the process forward. What is the actual objective of these talks? An immediate ceasefire and humanitarian access, urgently needed humanitarian access. So an immediate stop to to this military activity. It's very difficult to get reliable information from the region, but it's clear that civilians are suffering terribly. You know, for months and months and months, uh, there's been inadequate uh, humanitarian access, people living in some cases in famine conditions. Uh, so these are these are the urgent and immediate uh, goals of these these negotiations. I'm sure you've you've witnessed a lot of peace talks and negotiations. Have you ever uh, heard of a, a peace talk where actually a war is going on? Uh, I mean, there should be a secession of something before they sit on the table. Well, if it takes uh, coming to the table to get to the cessation of hostilities, I'm I'm all for it. Whatever it takes. <laughs> I don't I don't think the notion of sort of uh, the international community sitting back and waiting, um, watching this carnage unfold, that makes any sense. So it it certainly uh, I applaud uh, the effort that's underway. Uh, but it is unquestionably, you know, a, a steep hill to climb. And, you know, there's the question, too, of, of Eritrean participation. The Eritreans are not a part of these talks, but they're very much a part of the fighting that's going on. Um, who really speaks for them and their willingness to stop? Uh, it's unclear. Now that you've mentioned Eritrea, uh, what are the Eritreans getting out of this, their participation, their partnership with the Ethiopian government? Well, Uh, Certainly, I think there are historical grievances that animate uh, Eritrean policy. You know, I I don't claim to understand all of the decision-making that happens uh, in Esmara, but certainly the primacy that Eritrea historically has placed on um, ensuring that there are no neighbors uh, strong enough to threaten its sovereignty. There's, a, I suppose, a way of thinking that that leads to uh, the notion that 
weakening Tigray and possibly weakening Ethiopia is worth pursuing. That was Michel D. Gavin, the Ralph Bunch Senior Fellow for Africa Policy Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, speaking with me. The U.S. Embassy in South Africa has issued a rare warning of a possible terror attack this coming weekend in Santon, an upmarket business district of Johannesburg, sometimes dubbed Africa's richest square mile. South Africa's president has criticized the U.S. for putting out the alert and causing panic without first consulting the government. Kate Bartlett... The Johannesburg neighborhood of Santon is one of the wealthiest areas in Africa, home to luxury boutiques, upmarket restaurants, and major international corporations. So it was a shock to many South Africans when the U.S. Embassy issued an alert Wednesday saying the U.S. government has received information that terrorists may be planning to conduct an attack targeting lives of people at an unspecified location in the greater Santon area. The embassy did not give any detail as to who's believed to be behind the threat or the exact target or expected method of attack. It advised its staff to avoid the area over the weekend with the attack believed to be planned for Saturday. At Santon City, a mall directly across from the U.S. consulate, security was beefed up Thursday with armed guards stationed at the shopping center's entrance. Asked if she was alarmed by the terror warning, shopper Stella Sabalo said she was very concerned because such threats are extremely unusual in South Africa. It's a first in South Africa, hence it's, it's, it was like, what? Uh, it's a first, so I'm, I'm really hoping it's just a threat and nothing more. Frederick Van Zyl, a businessman who's been attending a work conference in Santon this week, said since hearing of the warning, other attendees were staying away. At this moment, a lot of our uh, colleagues and uh, friends have not come to Santon. Johannesburg's Gay Pride event is set to take place in Santon this weekend, with some speculation in local media that it could be a target. Asked at a press conference Thursday about the terror alert, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa criticized the U.S. for having issued it without first having a discussion with the government, calling it unfortunate. Any form of alert will come from the government of the Republic of South Africa, and it is unfortunate that uh, another government should issue such a threat as to send panic amongst our people. However, Ramaphosa said the government and its agencies were looking closely at the U.S. threat warning. U.S. Embassy spokesman David Feldman told VOA he didn't have anything to add to what was already in the alert. Many of the South Africans VOA spoke to at the mall expressed trepidation at the threat and said they would be staying away from Santon this weekend. But one shopper, Prashan Salikram, joked with trademark South African black humor that given Johannesburg's high rate of violent crime, it was the terrorists who should be worried. I'm not worried about it at all. This is South Africa. We terrorize terrorists here. <laughs> they probably get robbed before they get to us. <laughs> Unlike other African countries fighting Islamist militant groups, including neighboring Mozambique, South Africa is at peace and threats like this are rare. Kate Bartlett for VA News, Johannesburg. 
Somali officials yesterday executed two ISIS militants convicted for carrying out assassinations on behalf of the Al-Shabaab terrorist group, marking the second execution of Islamist militants in a week. The executions are part of the Somali government's all-out war on the militants, as Ahmed Mohammed reports from Mogadishu. The two men went before a firing squad at Mogadishu's General Kahir Police Academy after a military appellate court upheld a lower court ruling to execute the convicted militants. According to court papers, Adan Mohammed Ali Mohamud first joined a Shabab in 2010, but later defected to ISIS in 2015, while Mohammed Ali Mohammed Farah joined ISIS only after watching the group's propaganda via encrypted messages on the social media app Telegram. Military prosecutor General Abdullahi Kame told the court that the two were involved in a spate of killing of civilians and government officials in central Somalia and the capital Mogadishu. Professor Abdul Wahab Abdisamet, director of the Institute for Horn of Africa Strategic Studies, Told VOA the executions were the right step for Somalia's national security. You know, both Al Shabaab and uh, ISIS are enemy of this of Somali state. The government must protect the lives and the property of the people of Somalia. So, if any one of them committed a crime against the, the people of Somalia, the government must, you know, brought them to book so that they must face the music. So what the government has done right now, in fact, is a commendable job. It's a good job, job, job well done. Because that's how things are. That's any government in the world. They must protect the people of the state. That's, in fact, will improve the security of the country. Wednesday's execution comes just days after the execution of two other convicted Ashabab militants all part of the ongoing military operations throughout central regions of the country, where some colonists have contributed militias to fight alongside the government forces. Somali government officials on Wednesday said that security forces recently killed 17 Ashabab members in the middle Shabal region. Abdisamet says that while Ashabab is facing intense pressure as a result of the operations, the group remains intact and is not likely to suffer. Right now, there is a defection with Al-Shabaab. But, you know, they are, they are a resilient group. They are, they are going to retreat and uh, re-strategize their, their actions and operations in Somalia. Abi Hussein, a security analyst at the Somali Institute for Security Studies, says that although today's execution in Mogadishu sent a message to Al-Shabaab and others intending to destabilize the region, Reprisals may be imminent. He says the group will exert pressure on the towns by increasing attacks and assassinations. He adds, therefore the government should get ready to foil many different types of attacks against the towns, including assassinations, vehicle bone improvised explosive devices, IEDs, on the roadside attacks. In its most recent attack, a Shabab fighters killed at least nine people Sunday at a hotel in the southern coastal city of Kismayo. Ahmed Mohammed for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. 
The charity group Doctors Without Borders said today that Kenya's Dadab refugee complex faces a high risk of measles and cholera outbreaks as thousands of new refugees arrive from areas of Somalia where the diseases are circulating. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. More than 233,000 refugees live in three overcrowded camps in the Dadaab refugee complex. Doctors Without Borders, best known by its French acronym MSF, reported a sharp rise since January in the number of people fleeing to Kenya to escape drought, hunger and violence. The charity said many of the new arrivals are from southern Somalia, where measles and cholera outbreaks recently have occurred. MSF's Deputy Program Manager for Kenya, Adrian Guadarama, said Thursday in Geneva that many are being received by refugee communities inside camps, but many more are living in very poor conditions on the outskirts of the camps. Last week, he said MSF teams recorded three cases of measles and two suspected cases of cholera in Dagahale, one of Dadab's three refugee camps. This should be an alarm for all the actors and stakeholders involved in the response in Dadaab, because we know that just one case of any of these diseases can cause a full-blown outbreak very quickly, affecting not only the refugee community, but also the host community. Kenya's health ministry last week issued a cholera alert following confirmation of 61 cases in six counties. Guadarama said Kenya stopped registering new arrivals in Dadaab in 2015. Unregistered refugees, he said, cannot get basic services and assistance. He said clean drinking water is scarce and toilets and hand washing points lacking. These conditions, he said, make the unregistered refugees highly vulnerable to life-threatening diseases. Guadarama said the need for measles and cholera vaccination campaigns is urgent, but that devising a strategy is complex. Some people are scattered in the outskirts, he said, while others are inside Dagahale camp. We talk about a camp of 115,000, so just to identify them is quite a challenge. Um, And this is why having a screening point, a reception center or a registration center, that would be ideal, would allow us to couple with those activities and provide access to basic services, including uh, vaccination, for example. Guadarama said the humanitarian situation in the camps and in the surrounding communities is not yet at the breaking point, and there is still time to avoid an emergency in a long and protracted crisis. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. I'm Felix Masharia, CEO and co-founder at Kotanipe. I'm 29 years old. 
I come from Kenya. We were especially attracted to the competition because of its so it was looking to attract SMEs and startups that are building cross-border, interoperable, and cross-domain solutions. Our team is very much focused on creating social impact uh, in Africa, and it was nice to be not only recognized, but given a chance to present our work uh, to the global community. KotaniPay um, is a technology stack that connects blockchain protocols to local payment channels. In essence, what we do is we bring the benefits of blockchain technology um, to the local populace in uh, Kenya, Ghana, and slowly um, expanding to other African countries. We have already started seeing some of this impact through um, the use cases that we have enabled through our technology. Um, in the case of financial inclusion, it's now possible for small businesses on the continent to receive lending from decentralized finance uh, pools that are global in nature, and they receive this lending at lower rates than what they would ideally get in Kenya. Um, universal basic income programs focused on um, absolute or extreme poverty communities like refugees, and finally even climate resilience uh, use cases. Uh, we have enabled uh, parametric um, weather insurance um, coverage for farmers in, in Africa. I think we'll want to use this platform um, to make it very clear that uh, blockchain has benefits that move just beyond speculation. So it's quite possible to use the technology uh, to have a positive impact on people's lives. We'll use uh, this platform to communicate um, you know, some of the possibilities of the technology uh, for use cases uh, from financial inclusion all the way to climate uh, resilience. That was Felix Macheria from Kenya. His company, Kotani Pay, works with blockchain protocols and blockchain financial companies to connect with local payment systems in Africa. The company is one of the 10 finalists in the Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups, organized by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's U.S. Africa Business Center. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barro, and our engineer, Adrias Rigas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. 
Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of Press Conference USA, VOA's newsmaker interview program. Join us each Saturday and Sunday when we talk with authors, analysts, and policymakers who provide fresh insight on topics ranging from U.S. politics and foreign policy to science, culture, and global health. You can listen to Press Conference USA on the radio or online at voanews.com slash PCUSA. While you're visiting our website, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. Just send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voa or on Twitter at voa. That's Press Conference USA every Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America.